0: And welcome to another edition up inside the War Room. Ryan Ray here as always. And today we have on a guest whose book I've, I've read and I've enjoyed. And um, I'll say this. The book showed me how little I know about this part of the world. <laughs> so uh, it was one of those reads You're like, oh, wait, I didn't realize that. Oh, wait, I didn't realize that. Which is good to realize how much. You, now I start, I'm starting to know what I don't know. And the book is called In the Dragon's Shadow. The author is Sebastian Strangio. Uh, It's so good to have you today. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing well, thanks for having me. Okay, so let's talk briefly about why this book, why now?
1: Well, um, I mean, you know, what bigger story is there in the world right now than China's return to superpower status? Um, After 150 years in which, you know, uh, the country was internally divided and consumed with its own domestic uh, issues, um, you know, and, and and you know, to a certain time in that period, subjugated by Western empires and then by the Imperial Japanese Army. Um, you know, and finally returning to a position of, of of power and centrality that it you know that it occupied most recently. You know, in the early part of the 19th century. So, you know, this is this is a development, as I'm sure you know, that has global implications, um, and the implications are being felt particularly strongly in the neighborhood of China. Um, So I've, you know, as a journalist, I've covered, um, you know, politics and current affairs in Southeast Asia for quite a long time. And I became very interested in, you know, what impact China's rise was having in the region, particularly, I I spent eight years in Cambodia, which, you know, during the time I was there, went from being, you know, uh, well, during the eight years, I lived in the country from 2008 to 2016, China became the country's number one trade partner, its number one source of foreign investment, its number one source of tourism. And the you know the Chinese investment presence um, was you know you you saw it everywhere in the country. There were Chinese built bridges and highways um, that were opening up remote parts of the country. Chinese real estate firms were reshaping um, the city skyline in the capital Phnom Penh. And you know Chinese expatriate business people, students, tourists were everywhere. Um, And of course, this one of the reasons I think this Cambodia offers such an interesting angle on China's rising power is that you know, is is the fact that Cambodia in the early nineties was this sort of Western led international democracy building project after the end of the Cambodian, well, at the end of the cold war, there was an agreement um, multinational agreement aimed at ending Cambodia's civil war and putting the country on a democratic path. Um, And basically, I mean, to, to, to simplify a very complex story. You know, the government at the time, which is still the current government, never really accepted this. They thought it was a threat on their hold on power, um, and they sought to undermine it. By the time you get to two thousand eight, two thousand ten, around that period when I was when I first arrived in the country, China was becoming increasingly um, important as a an outside patron that did not subscribe to these this liberal suite of values. So it, you know, it would give aid and support to the Cambodian government without. Um, uh, you know, all of the good governance and human rights conditions that a lot of the Western countries would attach to their aid. And so what you, you, you know, I, I think in Cambodia, off, you know, and, and as I've argued in, in an earlier book on, on contemporary Cambodia, I think the country's recent history, um, you know, really tracks quite closely the fate of the sort of post-Cold War liberal moment. that that followed um, the defeat of the Soviet Union, that sense of giddy optimism that many people in the West felt that, you know, the the world was going to converge slowly, if haltingly on some variant of liberal democratic capitalism. I think that Cambodia, you know, captured that optimism in the early nineties, but it also has sort of tracked the, you know, the increasing um, challenges to that vision that have come about in large part because of the rise of China, although there are many other factors as well.
0: Okay, so r- real quick, um, you say liberal a lot for our U.S.-based audience. Maybe not familiar with how um, folks outside the states use the term liberal. Maybe put a little context when you're saying liberal democracy. Um, what does that mean in, in a Cambodian context versus maybe a U.S. context?
1: Well, it's it you know refers you know first of all you know to to guarantees of rights. So you know in, in the sense of. You know, constitutions that safeguard freedom of expression, etc, etc. I know in the US context, liberal tends to mean, you know, state intervention and, um, you know, a a left wing politics, Um, you know, in in this more in this broader application of the term, you know, you would describe the United States um, as a liberal democracy Um, and and so, you know, there was this attempt to sort of bring Cambodia, the, the, you know, not just peace and, and its civil war, but also the fruits of liberalism, you know, a freedom of expression, um, human rights, individual rights for its citizens. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and, and obviously economic freedoms are a part of that package as well. Um, you know, although in the case of Cambodia, you know, the, the things were probably a little bit more complicated in how they actually played out. But, um, but yeah, that's generally what I mean by liberal.
0: Yeah, it's, it's one of those things where I've, I've learned to realize that if I'm talking to my international friends, when they're saying liberal, they're meaning something like you're saying. I'm talking to U.S. friends, when they see liberal, they're meaning something completely different. So yeah, our, for sure. Basically, listen, I'm like, okay, let's let's have him unpack that so that they're familiar with it. And when I'm listening to international podcasts, I'm always going through, okay, are they talking about an international liberal or a U.S. liberal? And so, um, anyways, so what I found fascinating is um, just kind of thinking through these implications because. So my dealings with China, I'm on the, the George H.W. Bush Foundation uh, for U.S.-China Relations on Board of Advisors. I've had some business dealings in Africa, so I kind of have a little bit of a China-Africa background. And then I, I, yeah, I talk about energy quite often, so China and the Middle East, China and Russia. But the Southeast Asia kind of is left out of all the circles that, that I typically pay attention to. And it's a very rich culture, uh, and I hate to, to kind of use broad sweeping terms, but I, I don't have either way to describe it. It's a very rich uh, it's area full of culture in a lot of a lot of ethnic um um differences and yet similarities maybe unpack when we say southeast asia who are these peoples what are these countries that you're referring to what are the demographics and how do they how are they maybe similar in some ways and then um different in other ways
1: well southeast asia generally is generally recognized to encompass 11 nations that you know exist sort of to the south and east of china um as I guess, as the name suggests. Um, So then, you know, these include the 10 nations that are members of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, which is sort of a loose um, block. Um, And those nations are on the, you know, and and Southeast Asia can be roughly divided into sort of a a mainland and a maritime component. So on the mainland of Southeast Asia, you have Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, Thailand, and Myanmar um, with Bangladesh and India to the west. And China, sort of to the to the north, bordering them, bordering Laos, Cambodia, uh, Laos, Myanmar, and Vietnam directly. In the maritime regions, you have um, Malaysia, Singapore, Indonesia, the Philippines, and Brunei, within the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. And then the one nation that's outside of that block is East Timor or Timor Leste, which is, um, which I unfortunately didn't get to explore in my book, um, but. Uh, you know, is, it could potentially join ASEAN at a, at a, at a future date. Um, if we, One of the most remarkable things about Southeast Asia is just the remarkable diversity of the region. I mean, you have a region that has large populations of Catholics, Muslims, Buddhists, um, that speaks not only, you know, sort of the, you know, the, the official majority languages of each country, but within each country, there's a huge amount of linguistic and ethnic diversity. Um, You know, Southeast Asia runs from sort of the islands of the, you know, um, of the Western Pacific, all the way to the foothills of the Himalaya in Myanmar. And so it's, you know, it's an incredibly diverse region in every respect. Uh, Another another is um, levels of economic development. You have Singapore, one of the most economically advanced nations in the world existing in the same region as a country like Laos, which is, you know, still remains very poor, has a lot of development, you know, challenges. And um, and so, you know, th- yeah, it, virtually on every metric, Southeast Asia presents a picture of bewildering diversity.
0: Yeah, but there's also some um, historic Chinese influence that you've kind of unpacked a little bit. Um, so maybe what, what is, well, before I say that, so, and, and for the listeners, um, if, you, if you pick up a copy of the book, there's, there's there's maps in here to help you out. So <laughs> trying to talk through it on the podcast might seem a little confusing, but there's nice maps in the book to help you out. Um, okay, so for those 11 countries, give me a spectrum of how they view China. So we kind of have, we'll talk about maybe the Western view and the U.S. view, especially under the mm. administration in a minute. But how does the Southeast Asian nations, um, what is the spectrum of views that they have in regards to China and their relationship with it?
1: Well, the first thing to, I, to, to, to emphasize is that there's a certain amount of commonality there. So the, one of the common things that they all have with respect to China is proximity to China. So, you know, this has ensured that the two regions have interacted with one another for centuries. Um, Chinese migrants have been traveling to the region. Tri- Chinese merchants have been traveling to the region and trading with it uh, and settling there for, again, for centuries. Um, you know, there, there are, you know, reports from from the Angkorian period in Cambodia and the 12th century of, of Chinese immigrants being present in the kingdom of Angkor. So, you, you know, you have, um, you know, Southeast Asian nations paying tribute to the Chinese imperial court at various periods as well. Um, and so, you know, this proximity has always meant that China has been a very important presence in the... You know, in in the cultures and in the in and to, to some extent even in the politics of these, um, these nations and in in their economic life, um, in more recent years, of course, as as in the era of modern nation states, uh, you know, China, uh, the People's Republic of China, has, you know, has, has has played a very important role in the region. It you know, during the Maoist period, um, Southeast Asia was. know China's laboratory of revolution and you know communist China was supporting communist insurgencies in virtually every nation in the region um and and so generally you know Chinese policy always has a you know an immediate effect um on the Southeast Asian nations now within you know that broad sort of commonality in how these nations view China or you know the proximity to it and and sort of the, the the omnipresence of China in their in their recent histories there is, um, you know, there is a, a, a great deal of diversity in how they perceive it. And, you know, a lot of that has to do with, you know, the the differences in specific geographic orientation. The nations that border China tend to have sort of a, you know, a history of more friction. Um, nations that are slightly more distant um, tend to, you know, be a little bit more, you know, I mean, it, it's very hard to encapsulate in, in a short, um, you know, in, in a very uh,
0: there's a wider range of. I would would you agree that there's a wider range of, normal normally expressed opinions than there is in the U S. So the U S. is kind of a, a tight window of what you're going to say about China, whether you're on the left or the right. Would you say that the southeast uh, Southeast Asia has more of a a uh, mix of or more variety of kind of good bad China and somewhere in between? So,
1: yeah, I, I think that's 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 definitely accurate. I think it's also true that perceptions of China are much more ambivalent and fraught. Um, you know, this is the region that has benefited and stands to benefit immensely from China's economic growth and emergence under the world stage. It's also a region that has got a lot of, you know, is very concerned about what powerful China will mean for the region's future. And so there's this sort of constant tension within Southeast Asian perceptions of China. Um, I mean, you know, another factor that's been hugely important in the region is the role of ethnic Chinese um, you know, diaspora migrant communities, the region is seeing huge waves of ethnic Chinese migration. And, you know, in Malaysia, um, people of Chinese descent, generally southern Chinese descent, when we're talking about migrants to Southeast Asia, um, make up about a quarter of the population. In Singapore, they make up three quarters of the population. In Thailand, around about 10%. And in each case, you know, during, you know, the, the sort of European colonial period in the nineteenth and twentieth centuries, Chinese very often established themselves in positions of economic um, preponderance um, within Southeast Asian nations. Not universally, but you know, um, and and so the the one of the most sensitive questions in how you know the nations of Southeast Asia view China is this question of you know the ethnic Chinese in their midst, you know, the position that they occupy in society, and also the, the their relationship, perceived or otherwise, to um, mainland China, to the People's Republic today itself, um, and and this you know this has been a constant thread of, through the modern history of Southeast Asia and how nations um, have have sort of assimilated their ethnic Chinese minorities and you know and 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 especially during the Cold War that the, the, how these minorities were viewed um, and treated um, has differed from place to place as well. So you know I, I think you're definitely right in saying there's a great deal more. Um, you know, diversity in how China is viewed than in the US right now. But also, as I said, a lot more, you know, things are a lot more ambivalent. There's a a lot, you know, there are people who say it's an absolutely good thing or an absolutely bad thing. But I think, you know, a large percentage of sort of the policymakers in the region do find themselves somewhat in the middle.
0: Okay, you mentioned the the, the Chinese nationals who have kind of migrated to Southeast China and, and live there. That's one of the things I wanted to get your opinion on because in the West, it feels like um, it's kind of hard to have an honest conversation about Chinese nationals in the U S you know, um, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to a lot of the the, the frustrations that they feel in America uh, because of just kind of the volatile relationship between the U S and China. Um, And part of that is you you have to acknowledge that, that the Chinese government is really, cracking down on their citizens wherever they're at with new security laws, things like this. So you mentioned there's a little bit of apprehension, maybe it's the right word. I don't know. Um, How does Southeast Asia handle that? Because on some level you want to give someone the benefit of the doubt. And on the other level, you're like, okay, I don't know what's going to happen and I don't want to get this person in trouble. And um, you know, in the West, get the freedom of speech issue. So how does that work itself out practically um, in, you know, somewhere like Vietnam or uh, these other countries?
1: Well, you have to draw a distinction between, ethnic Chinese who have been in Southeast Asia for generations, you have people whose ancestors migrated to the region, most of them, you know, in the the high colonial period, um, late 19th century up to about the beginning of the Second World War. Um, You know, in this, you know, many of these people were very, very poor, Um, they came from, regions mostly of southern china and they traveled for employment in you know colonial plantations and tin mines in malaya and sugar plantations in java so you know these were and and their descendants today you know are are you know while they view themselves in sort of cultural terms as chinese are you know you know could not be further removed from present day chinese citizens who who remained in the People's Republic, who endured the period of Mao and all the privations and challenges that that brought, um, and who have grown up in this sort of you know rising power, um, increasingly self-confident power. Um, so you know when it comes to the old Chinese, you know the, the, there always has been that that question of dual loyalties, right? You know um, one of the the tensions in you know Southeast Asian you know, um, uh, you know, quote unquote, native Southeast Asians um, toward their, I think Chinese minorities has been the question of their ultimate loyalty, you know, uh, are they loyal to Thailand or to Malaysia, or do they ultimately look to China? And, and one of the reasons for this is that, you know, the, the rise of Chinese nationalism in the late 19th and early 20th centuries spread to Chinese that were abroad. And and this was right at the time when nationalism in Southeast Asia was beginning to develop, and so you had, in some, you know, in certain instances such as Indonesia, um, to a certain extent in Thailand, and you you had local nationalisms defining themselves against Chinese nationalisms. So this is sort of, you know, there's been a sort of a vocal nationalist fringe in a lot of countries that's continued to view um, ethnic Chinese as essentially alien to the national community. Um, now every country is different. The relationship. Uh, you know, the position of ethnic Chinese minorities in each country is different. And so one can't generalize too much, but this has been the root of the problem. What we've seen in more recent years, um, really dating back to the reform and opening in China in the late seventies and through the 1980s, is a you know, gradual trickle and then a wave of new emigration um, to Southeast Asia. Um, and these are, you know, as I, as I suggested before, very different people. First of all, they're passport-carrying PRC citizens, so they're not. I mean, some may eventually naturalize, but you know, many of them are coming to the region, doing business, and then with the intention of returning. Um, they're not fleeing poverty in the same way that you know that the previous generations of immigrants were, and so they, you know, they, and they, and they sort of can enjoy a certain amount of state backing their business ventures, um, the support of local chambers of commerce, which are connected very often to local embassies in Southeast Asian countries. And and so these people are sort of almost a different, um, you know, uh, kettle of fish, I suppose, you know, in terms of their relationship to the local government. Um, It's legitimate for the Chinese government to, you know, be concerned about their welfare abroad and to intervene on their behalf. Where things get a little bit problematic is in, you know, the the sort of question of um, China, not distinguishing the Chinese government, not distinguishing between the various categories uh, of ethnic Chinese abroad. And so lumping together sort of people who've been in the region for generations, um, calling them Chinese and saying that they're members of the wider Chinese family and and lumping them together with PRC citizens who actually have passports and, you know, um, uh, and so you know, th- that's been a, you know, a point of tension. I mean, I think, you know, th- there has been tension, um, tensions related to the arrival of new, um, you know, passport carrying Chinese nationals over the in recent decades. I mean, there's been complaints about Chinese tourists behaving badly. Um, there have been concerns, you know, about illegal activity, you know, Chinese organized crime becoming active in certain parts of Southeast Asia. Uh, particularly in the you know with connecting to the gambling industry Um, and and generally sort of you know a lot of what you hear is sort of you know expressions of you know cultural disdain you know the the chinese are loud and rude especially in southeast asia where a lot of cultures um are you know um quite reserved and conservative you know seeing these you know tourist tourist groups from mainland china that can be quite um you know raucous um you know, has has rubbed some sensitivities the wrong way. And and, and that's layered on top of the more general concern about, um, you know, the region being flooded from China, which is a much deeper and more profound fear, you know, linked to the migration, large scale migration of ethnic Chinese, you know, a century and more ago. Um, in the United States, you have this concern about you know, Chinese students and researchers being linked to Chinese state espionage efforts. This is not something that you, you know, hear that much about in Southeast Asia, Um, you know, to the extent that it's a problem in the United States, I'm sure it's a problem in Southeast Asia as well. But, um, you know, I think that it's, um, I think of much more concern is the PRC's attempt to, you know, seek the loyalty and support of non-Chinese citizens who are ethnically Chinese. So, you know, reaching out to the old Chinese of Malaysia and Singapore and and trying to sort of, you know, know, business associations, chambers of commerce, you know, cultural institutes, language, Chinese language institutes, all of these sorts of community organizations are, you know, receive a lot of attention from local Chinese embassies from the Chinese state. And, you know, as I suggested before, you know, recently um, Xi Jinping has spoken of these ethnic Chinese communities as members of a a wider Chinese family and said that they have a role to play in China's national rejuvenation. And so, you know, in, in a lot of places where Chinese ethnic Chinese have, you know, you know, struggled for acceptance into the national community and have achieved that to a certain extent, this Chinese outreach runs the risk of simply reinforcing or re resurrecting old fears amongst ethnic majorities in Southeast Asia that I the ethnic Chinese uh, in their midst, their, their fellow citizens actually have dual loyalties and that ultimately they are loyal to Beijing. And so, you know, it runs the risk of being, uh, you know, reawakening tensions within Southeast Asian countries, as well as between Southeast Asian governments and the Chinese government.
0: One of the things I appreciate about your entry is, is kind of how you layered it and nuanced it. I had someone on uh about china they said you can study china your whole life and never understand much about it you know it, it,
1: oh, a, i know i know that feeling for sure
0: it's a very complex and nuanced issue and you know depending on who you talk to you, you got kind of like i said earlier with the liberal thing are we talking very macro are we talking very micro or, or what's going on here um yeah sure so so thank you for that um one more quick kind of broad question here and then uh, i want to talk about vietnam after this um so you, you mentioned a little bit kind of about this um, going back and reclaiming its citizens w- w- in the West right now. Um, I don't think it's really getting the attention that it deserves. You're starting to see some, some of the headlines. We have the Hong Kong security laws. We have stuff like that that's being rolled out. Um, and then we have we had on Erica back a few weeks ago talking about the pressure that Australia received from China mm. to not you know they can't you know we you know we'll we'll do deals with you guys, but you can't write you know, press stories about us. Basically, um, how is Southeast Asia? do they get that kind of same pressure or do they feel it? Do they rebuff it? Do they have, have they figure out a way to kind of thread the needle maybe better than the West or Australia has? How does those, how do those things play out?
1: Well, I mean, the region has definitely, you know, come under pressure from Beijing or certain nations in the region have come under pressure from Beijing. You know, I mean, this is, you know, this, this is the region that contains the South China Sea. So, you know, um, of the, you know, the four main, claimants other than China, you know, three of them are Southeast Asian nations. You could probably throw Indonesia in that mix as well, even though it claims not to be, a, a, a you know, legally a claimant um, in the South China Sea, you know, it, it has some frictions with China on that. Um, yeah, I mean, China's like, you know, like, like uh, a lot of great powers in past and present is uses its economic might to um, threaten countries and reward them. Um, Sort of, you know, in the book, I I argue that China's pitch to the region is basically flourish within a Chinese orbit or languish outside of it. So, I mean, one good example of how this works is, you know, in 2012, the uh, China and the Philippines had a prolonged standoff over Scarborough Shoal, which lies about 200 nautical miles west of Luzon Island, the Philippines, um, and in the South China sea. Um, I won't go into the specifics of the standoff, but basically, you know, the two nations were, you know, there was a, there was a tense situation. Um, ships were deployed from both sides and there was mediation with with the U S government stepping in to try and resolve things. What the Chinese did, um, was, you know, in retaliation for the Philippines, you know, um, Opposing its, its sort of presence at this shoal was to, you know, it ordered Chinese tour groups not to visit the Philippines and it all of a sudden, you know, um, uh, prevented the export, the import of Chinese, uh, of Filipino um, fruit. So mangoes and, and bananas, which rotted, were left to rot um, in the ports in China, um, you know, and quite interestingly, you can also date from around this time, the growth of banana plantations in Laos just across the border from China's Yunnan province. Um, but anyway, this, this, you know, is very similar to the treatment that Australia is getting at the moment, that the sort of these these import restrictions, um, I think, you know, it's nations in Southeast Asia are have, have been subject to this. I think the difference is that they are economically dependent on China to such an extent that they, you know, they tend to avoid doing things that will openly anger the Chinese government, um, you know, I think, they have a certain degree of shared interest in terms of economic, you know, stability and relations. Given the amount of trade, China is now the most important economic partner to every nation in the region, um, and the leading trade partner of nearly all of them. And so there is this sort of, you know, um, you know, uh, the nations in the region have not, um, you know, are reluctant to to do anything that might imperil that. Um, it's also true that they are, you know, their view on China's, you know, I would argue less sort of, you know, in the West, you know, attitudes toward China, as you suggested, are becoming very negative now. And you don't really see that in Southeast Asia, like a lot of the issues that concern Western policymakers and observers, like the authoritarian nature of the Chinese system, um, you know, are not issues. They're not determinative issues for Southeast Asian governments. And so, you know, there is, you know, they view that there's a lot of scope for um, working with China and then using more um, subtle and, you know, uh, subtle means to sort of defend their interests. And and we've seen, you know, you see Southeast Asian nations um, taking all sorts of different... Uh, Approaches to trying to, to safeguard their sovereignty against China, um, you know, either directly in the South China Sea where there are direct clashing sovereignty claims, or, you know, just in terms of you know the encroachment of Chinese China's economic influence and 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 so forth. Um, but yes, yeah, certainly, I mean the region, you know, given its dependence on China, is very vulnerable to, you know, economic coercion. Um, but, you know, it generally seeks to manage this tension or any tensions that it has with China in a more sort of a more quiet and more subtle way than um, Australia and the US, you know, have generally acted towards China as of late.
0: Okay, so you devote some time in the book to Vietnam. and I found this interesting because in America, especially, um, Vietnam is kind of a, a forgotten thing. You know, it's a forgotten country almost. It comes up occasionally, um, and that's because of the the Vietnam War, obviously, and how that went down, how it ended, and kind of how the history is being told about it now. And um, a lot of the Vietnam veterans are still alive. And so you kind of have this, this sore spot. Um, but but you, you kind of paint a picture. I'll, I'll let you paint the picture of Vietnam in the book, but if you did the book, but I found it fascinating because um, if you kind of go back to even the pre Vietnam uh, War era, what was going on uh, there, It to me, it's a, it's a classic example from the US side of things of a country that we were heavily involved in. Then we leave alone. And then you, you read something like your book, you're like, wow, okay. <laughs> you know, we should be paying more attention to these types of things.
1: Sure, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I mean, Vietnam in, in the context of Southeast Asia is unique for a number of reasons. It's, you know, it is the nation that has been most deeply imprinted by both Chinese civilization, Chinese culture, but also has most strenuously resisted um, Chinese incursions from China. You know, um, northern Vietnam was ruled as an imperial, pro, you know, appendage, uh, you know, for nearly a thousand years, um, and so you know, the, the the impact that China has had on Vietnam has been profound. Um, you know, and and what I you know I identify in the book sort of the core irony of Vietnamese history, which is that you know, it is things that it has borrowed from China, military technology, forms of social organization, you know, philosophies such as Confucianism that have in many ways given it the tools to resist becoming absorbed by China, to, to becoming a Chinese satellite. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it's it's the, you know, perhaps the one nation in the region that can really be described as Sinitic. I mean, you, I suppose you could say that Singapore is as well, given that it's, a you know, th- ethnic Chinese majority city state, but, you know, Vietnam, you know, has so many similarities with China from the, 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 you know, the the form of its sort of Leninist, Confucian, communist system um, to, you know, forms of social organization, you know, uh, linguistic commonalities, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And, you know, and this puts, you know, obviously puts Vietnam in a very complex position, um, you know, since China has begun, uh, you know, it's, it's return to great power status. I mean, on the one hand, you know, the Vietnamese public is profoundly anti-Chinese, you know, and, and, and it, so when you look at public opinion surveys, views about China, Vietnam very often come and comes right at the bottom, you know, the, 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 the least positive views and the most negative views of China uh, in the region alongside Japan. Um, and so, you know, th- there's this sort of constant simmering nationalist angst about China. At the same time, the, you know, the, the Vietnamese Communist Party, the Vietnamese state, um, rely very heavily on China economically. There's a huge amount of trade. Um, and Vietnam runs a very large trade deficit with China. Um, most of the electronic components that the Vietnamese factories, factories in Vietnam you know, use to manufacture into smartphones and plasma TVs and so forth, you know, come from China. So there's this very close economic linkage. There's also, you know, the historic connection that the Chinese Communist Party helped Ho Chi Minh and the Vietnamese communists um, consolidate their state in North Vietnam. And and it's hard to imagine um, the Vietnamese communists beating the French and then beating the Americans were it not for either active Chinese support or the threat of more of a Chinese intervention um, in defense of the Vietnamese revolution. And so, you know, there are, you know, historic connections that go back a long way. Um, there's a lot of shared interests in Beijing and Hanoi, both are communist parties in a post-communist world. They both have the interest of sort of, you know, um, you know, maintaining their their hold on power and, and, and preventing sort of, you know, outside powers, including the US from sort of, you know, trying to foster some kind of democratic revolution, um, which is still a subject of fear in Hanoi, even as the country has grown more friendly with the United States and begun to see you know, benefits in partnership with it. Um, you know, Vietnam finds itself in a very fraught situation, but it's also been quite, I think, quite canny at, at, at you know, coming up with a strategy for, for, for managing China's rise. Um, and it's it's been quite good at quarantining areas of disagreement, particularly the clashes in the South China Sea from the more productive uh, elements of the relationship, such as the economic side. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Vietnam, you know, it it, 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 there's a great phrase from the historian Brantley Womack that I quote in my book is that Vietnam is the southern boundary stone of China's, uh, you know, China's pretend Chinese pretensions. Um, and, and I think it, it, it aptly sums up, you know, the sort of fraught, almost sort of, tributary in a sense relationship that the two nations have, you know, that the Vietnam is forever struggling against the, you know, the against Chinese domination, but yet it is also yoked to China and connected to it in a very profound way that, and, and is really unable to escape both by virtue of the tyranny of proximity, but also sort of the, you know, the cultural proximity um, that that it enjoys with China.
0: So let me ask you, maybe ask you like this. Um, one of the criticisms of the Trump administration was that they didn't know how to negotiate properly with China. And if I'm hearing you correctly, on some level, it sounds like what you're saying is it would be easier to work with a stubborn brother because you know him pretty well. So you can deal with him because you know him, you know, his inter- you know how to push his buttons, but also let off. Whereas the U.S., at least for the Trump administration, was just like some distant relative who showed up at the family reunion and mm. they got some things right, but... <laughs> They're more causing a ruckus with everything else. So is that kind of a good analogy for how I think maybe uh, Southeast Asia and Vietnam, how they know how to work with China? So from the Western side, we're looking at going, I don't understand what they're doing, but they're like, if you actually knew the family dynamics, yeah. it Yeah, more sense to you.
1: Well, I, I, you know, I think that you could probably make that kind of analogy. I mean, I think Southeast Asian nations, you know, they, they understand, I think, China better. Um, China definitely understands Southeast Asian nations better, I think, than the US does, um, broadly speaking. Um, There are, you know, um, they share certain interests, you know, even though, you know, a lot of nations in Southeast Asia have frictions with China, um, which are, you know, really rooted in proximity and and, and are likely to be ongoing. They also have areas of, of, of common interest. I mean, you know, as I mentioned before, you know, a China, a stable, prosperous China is in the region's best interest. You know, when China has been in a state of internal collapse and dynasties have fallen, that's very often led to flights of, you know, mass flights of people to the South. So you've had, at the end of the Ming dynasty, you had people washing up um, on the shores of Southern Vietnam and and becoming involved in the politics of that region. Um, You had people, you know, fleeing through the mountains of Yunnan province into, you know, the the, the Burmese kingdom of the time. And, you know, something that triggered a, you know, a Qing invasion to apprehend these this sort of, um, these Ming refugees that, 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 you know, tried to take refuge in, in the Burmese kingdom at the time. So, uh, you know, the, the region is very aware that an unstable China um, uh, or a hostile China, such as the China of Mao, you know, is, is, is bad for the region. Um, bad for the
0: world. I mean, I think that- yeah, A lot of folks in the yeah, I, admit and, that, it's bad for the world.
1: And that was the logic of President Nixon's opening to China, which was, you know, he argued in his his article on Foreign Affairs, sort of laying out the logic of that, uh, you know, that it was better to have a China that was part of the community of nations rather than sort of this, you know, insular hostile power that was seeking, you know, to revolutionize the world. And and so, you know, but there's also, you know, between Southeast Asian uh, nations and China, and I think this also applies to a lot of the nations of the global South, there is an ambivalence about, the current world order and about U.S. power. I think this is something that is rooted in a common experience of colonialism, Western imperialism. Um, China wasn't fully conquered by Western imperial powers, but it, you know, it was it was subjugated and humiliated by them. Um, you know, the century of humiliation is what the CCP refers to um, uh, refers to this period as the century of humiliation, and 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 you know, expunging that humiliation is one of the main goals of you know Xi Jinping's sort of. know, national rejuvenation project. Um, But, you know, I think that, you know, it's very easy to underestimate from a Western perspective just how profound the effect of Western imperialism was on Southeast Asia and on China. In every nation that experienced it, you know, imperialism was not just humiliating, um, it also, you know, forced elites in these countries to ask themselves very, very searching questions about why they had failed to meet this challenge. So old institutions, old, you know, old political philosophies, old, you know, ideas were all held up to excoriating, you know, scrutiny. Um, and, you know, and, and it forced, you know, these nations really to confront their failures and and to, you know, and then to struggle for, you know, to, to sort of regain control of their destiny. And so what, what the end of, the end of the European colonial empires and of course the United States too in the Philippines around you know the 19 around the second world war and into the 1950s and 60s um, resulted in was the creation of nation states that are incredibly nationalistic um, and incredibly sensitive to outside nations either telling them what to do or impinging on their sovereignty now that applies for China but it also applies for western powers Um, and so what you have one of the main areas of common interest between China and the Southeast Asian nations is as a shared sort of zeal for the norm of national sovereignty. You know, this is really a fetish in Southeast Asia. Um, and it's something, you know, it's built into the way that ASEAN, the association of Southeast Asian nations does business. Um, we're, you know, we're seeing right now with the situation in Myanmar, that ASEAN has found it very difficult to actually do anything about it. um, because, it requires consensus and is very—it's very sensitive for ASEAN to be seen to be interfering in one of its member states' affairs. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that China's vision of global order is one of sovereign nations. Um, you know, uh, you know, we're basically with hard borders around them, where transnational principles like human rights, you know, will not override um, sovereign national interests. And I think a lot of Southeast Asian nations view things mostly in the same way. So when the US government comes and criticizes the Thai government or the Myanmar government for, for human rights abuses or for democratic backsliding, very often you know China's right there, ready to offer support, no strings, as they say, support for these governments and a sort of non-judgmental form of, and consistent form of engagement. Um, China doesn't really have an ideological agenda in quite the same way. Um, I, I do think China is ideological and how, it, you know, it, it's its vision of sovereign, you know, uh, an international system based on the norm of sovereignty is ideological, of course, but in its dealings with, um, you know, the, the nations of the post-colonial global south, it's generally, you know, it doesn't really care what sort of regime they have. It, it is sort of, uh, uh, it, it, you know, it offers support you know, untethered from any demands about how countries, you know, run their affairs. Now, obviously this is this is in principle, in practice, the Chinese government is concerned about, you know, it meddles in various ways of its own. Um, I would say probably less than Western countries do, but still nonetheless, you know, it does, its relationship with overseas Chinese communities, of course, is one main um, element of that. Um, but I think, you know, it is important to see that, you know, I think, you know, in the West, we see China, or, you know, incre- China is increasingly seen as sort of this unqualified bad, you know, um, whereas in Southeast Asia, you know, there are, it's important to recognize that there are a lot of areas of overlap. Um,
0: That's one of the things I appreciate your book is because dealing kind of with the, the I hate to say Africa, because there's a lot of African nations, but the African nations that I've dealt with and stuff, you know, their perspective, by and large, is more of the Western perspective um, on, on China but your book kind of paints a different perspective from a different part of the world and so it's, it's good to kind of have a different perspective to mm. push back against some of the the, the the media narratives and so my general stance um, on, on China is that um, you know I think I'm a free market libertarian. I want everyone to succeed. <laughs> like, I don't want mm. bad things to happen to people. Um, I don't want a bunch of wars and stuff like that going on. So, um, but I do think there's there's practical issues on how we have to do it. And, and I'm, I'm always torn on how to attribute China's motivations and so your your book again is a, is a kind of a refreshing way to to sit down and to push back on some of the narratives that I that I've had and how Southeast Asia views it because they are a lot closer. They're going to see it differently. Um, whether I agree or not with if they're doing the right thing it doesn't really matter. That's how they're doing it, and that's where they've had success and failure. So it's it's kind of an interesting thing. Mm. And I always struggle to deal with China because um, you know they just had their call with with Biden last night, and they said, well, you know, we don't want you dealing with our internal affairs, which are the Uyghurs, you know, Taiwan. <laughs> You know, Hong Kong, it's okay. So I'll, I'll concede Hong Kong's internal. Uh, Taiwan's, I'm not really sure about that. And the week hmm. is a general human rights issue that we need to deal with. And and so, it, but to your point about these kind of hard nation states, that's why they like doing a deal with Iran because they can do a deal with Iran and Iran's not going to say anything to them. And so it's just like, okay, well they want to do this because they kind of get a free pass on these other things. And so um, how they interact with Southeast Asia um, is interesting because they do have obviously the military might there to really push back if they wanted to. and um, Southeast Asia would be you know, at the, well, you know, at the perils if it, if it came to it. Mm, sure. Sure. yeah.
1: I think it's also important because you know if the the. US. is seeking to engage nations in Southeast Asia as part of its China policy, you know, sort of pushing back against China and containing Chinese Chinese power and ambition. And, and and if it's engaging with Southeast Asia on a on mistaken premise, then, you know, it's, it's not likely to succeed. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, yeah. I mean, I think ultimately the story is is, is one of, you know, uh, this is why I mentioned at the beginning, you know, why I think Cambodia was so interesting because this was a nation that very much reflected the, the reigning idea, liberal sort of perception at the end of the Cold War that the world was gradually going to, um, uh, you know, converge on a form of liberal democratic government. Um, it, you know and, and there was a lot of energy and, and money expended in Cambodia trying to realize that vision. The fact that Cambodia now has you know that, that that I think that project can be said to have definitively failed in Cambodia. The current government has banned the main opposition party and um, you know has rounded up its critics and has basically it said we don't need Western aid if you don't want to give it to us anymore, then fine we've, we've got China and Japan as well, which is sticking around to try and counter China. Um, And so, you know, that to me, I think reflects a broader shift of power and wealth in the world. Um, The unipolar era when, when the United States was unchallenged globally um, from 1991 until arguably, you know, um, Iraq, it was a very short period. And I think that what, what, Things like Iraq showed was the limits of American power. Now, the limits of American power in that, in an era in which China was still a relatively, you know, modest sized economy, but you know the limits are becoming ever more apparent. And um, and I think that when you're dealing with an, a region that is in China's neighborhood, um, you know, a nation that, due to COVID, is is on track to become the world's largest economy sooner than was originally projected. Um, all of a sudden, you know, the idea that there is a liberal consensus or that there is, you know, there is a global consensus around ideas of human rights and democratic principles um, is no longer quite so clear. And I think that, you know, a lot of, you know, I think I think this is one of the most interesting and consequential, you know, results of China's rise is being, you know, to really um, to challenge the idea that there ever was a consensus and to give not a, not necessarily to give other nations a model to emulate but to give them freedom from models you know a lot of nations like cambodia or or myanmar or the, a lot of these nations were told by foreign governments for years do things you know be more democratic respect human rights do things according to you know in line with these liberal principles um and i think they never really they never really liked it but they sort of had to put up with it because there was no other option. But now China's there and is willing to say, we don't really care. We're going to engage with you. We have our own interests. You have yours. Let's do business. Um, And, you know, they they now have, they've been given a freedom from, you know, being forced to sort of adopt that liberal model. And I think that's probably the best way to, in my eyes, to view the way that China engages with these countries. It's not seeking the export of authoritarianism. It's working with countries that have, deeply entrenched authoritarian political cultures and, and uh, of their own. And, um, you know, is basically, you know, allowing them to continue to govern themselves in that manner and not really expressing any opinion about it. Um, now It's always possible that China will find itself caught sort of on the wrong side of things, as it were, if there's if these anti-coup protests in Myanmar continue to develop and, and end up sort of resulting in a, a genuine democratic uprising. Um, you know, the Chinese government might find itself the subject of a lot of popular anger for having supported this or being perceived to have supported or not condemned this uh, new military government. But, you know, knowing Myanmar's realities as I do, I, you know, I am concerned that, you know, that, that, that you know, I'm, I'm not very optimistic about that happening. And, uh, you know, uh, China's pragmatism will probably serve it well, um, or at least as well as it can in a country that's there's always been a degree of friction um, uh, that's always seen China with the degree of friction.
0: Yeah, I just saw before we got on here that you put out a piece for the diplomat. I have not got a chance to read it, but it is on my, on my list about what's going on with the uh, uh, newly announced Biden sanctions. And I think you have a piece mm. uh, from a few days ago, maybe just 30 second overview for those who aren't familiar. We've seen the news, the coup, it was maybe the 30 second, Hey, this is what's going on and here's what's important. And the, maybe the one thing you should follow about the memoirs, uh, 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 uh Oh, that's a
1: hard, that's a hard um, thing you're asking. Myanmar is one of the most complicated countries in Southeast Asia. I mean, you know, before we uh, talk about the coup, and and this is relevant for for its relationship with China too, of course, but this is a country that a third of the population belong to ethnic minority groups that live in peripheral regions of the country that have never been under effective state control. They weren't under the effective control of the old Burmese pre-colonial Burmese kingdoms. They weren't under the effective control of the British when they were in charge. They were, you know, they, they were given a huge amount of autonomy by the British and they have never been under the full control of the central Burmese state. And so you have a country that has experienced nearly constant civil war since its independence in 1948. Um, and that civil war, the sort of fracturing ethnic minority autonomy, uh, insurgencies fighting for autonomy and, and independence in, in the mountainous outlying regions of the country have provided sort of the pretext for the military to assert itself as the central um, Sort of uh, element of of you know the most important element of the uh, of the Burmese state, which is the one force that can sort of hold the country together. Um, and what you have now is is you know uh, one of the periodic backlashes against military rule. Um, the military governed Burma from 1962 till 2011, nearly half a century, and then introduced some political reforms that were carefully crafted to preserve the military's. Um, power and prerogatives and to reserve it a central role in the state, despite multi-party elections and so forth. What they've done in the last couple of weeks is essentially put that system to one side and seize power again for a period they say of one year. Um, And as a result, you have the entire nation after having experienced 10 years of relative freedom in terms of freedom of the press, uh you know and and, and you know and then for, for middle classes in the country, sort of economic progress all of that being wiped aside and the country being hauled back to the the you know the old mil- days of military rule and, and there's, there's a huge amount of opposition to that but um you know the country's i think the country's challenges are much more complex than simply a lack of democracy i think that that's you know a, a truly democratic system in Myanmar would be a, a necessary but probably not sufficient um Condition for you know a a deeper sort of solution of the country's problems.
0: Okay, uh, two more quick questions for you. and We'll let you go. One, this book um, obviously put a lot of time into it. Um, one thing when I've talked to authors, they don't often get asked about the labor of love that went into it. So take take your victory lab because this is a depressive book. There's a lot of work, a lot of interviews, a lot of background research. Um, again, you know when, when I was going through, it's it like ah, like I really got to read more. <laughs> <laughs> about Southeast <laughs> Asia, it just exposed how little I know about the area. So, um, uh, so maybe just um, the the ups and downs, uh, some things you learned. Read right the book. Uh, I'll let you enter it however you want to. But um, take 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 a victory victory lap, if you will.
1: Well, yeah, I mean it was it was definitely a labor of love. I mean, you know, writing books is not a an economically unless you're writing million sellers. You know, is not a an economically sort of um, lucrative endeavor. Um, this was really something that I had planned for quite a while. you know, I, I, you know, I've reported across the region for a long time now. Um, and I had the, you know, th- this was a story that I kept seeing everywhere. And so, you know, I, I always kind of filed away in the back of my mind that this would be a project that, that, that I could sort of compile once, you know, I had a bit of time, um, to do so. Um, and, you know, like all book projects, you know, it's, 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 it's a a very long process, um, especially if you do it properly. I mean, if you, if, if you could probably write a polemic quite quickly, but if you're doing something that requires sort of field research in each country, in addition to, you know, I had to learn a lot about the Philippines and Malaysia and countries that I, I hadn't really done a lot of work on. Um, and yeah, it's, um, it took probably about two years of writing. Um, And I drew on past reporting that I'd done. I also did a few extra trips, um, specific reporting trips to Singapore and Malaysia and the Philippines, um, which, you know, it was specifically for the book with the book in mind. Um, And so, yeah, yeah. Is there anything else you wanna know about the process?
0: <laughs> well, no, I just always love to hear authors talk about the process because they all some of them they all have a different take on it. Some of them are like, I, I asked someone that one time, like, you know, no one's ever asked me that. Thank you. And so they had this big thing about it. And some people are like, I'm never writing the book again. <laughs> and then some people are like, No, it's just it was tough, but I really appreciated it. So no, I just I always like to hear um, you know, as someone who writes um I uh, not write books like you do, but uh, write, writes newsletters. I just I like I'm like, oh, I've got this great idea. I'm gonna put out twelve hundred words, like th- three words in. I'm like, oh, that wasn't very smart, you know, until <laughs> so you gotta rewrite it. I can't imagine the amount of research that goes into that. So it's it's just appreciation more than anything else. Um yeah. Uh, go, go Thanks. Yeah. Oh no, that's it. Yeah. Final question for you. I, and I've seen other people ask you this or point this out. The subtitle of the book is Southeast Asia in the Chinese Century. Um, so my question is this. One of the things that I've theorized is that in from you know basically 1900 to 2000, the world was more or less the map as we know it today was more or less shaped from the top down. Um, you know, you have governments and wars and all that stuff. My, my, my theory is between now and you know uh, 2100, the world will, will be reshaped from the bottom up, so you will see more. Um, I, I use the term populist, but populist type movements or. Um, you know, just average people saying, you know, we've had enough or we don't like this, we're going to move. Um, a, do you maybe a degree or disagree, either way is fine. And then B, if you do agree, would that play out in Southeast Asia and how might that play out? And then how does that impact China, obviously, as well?
1: Well, I mean, I would say it's not really a question of either or. Um, it's a question of relative, you know, balance. I do think that ordinary citizens, due to technological advances, have been given tools um, you know, that give them, you know, an increasing ability to sort of influence the course of political events. I mean, of course, this has always been the case to some extent, I mean, the, the you know, the, the great revolutions of 1848 and the French revolution, I mean, the, the you know, uh, I don't wanna overstate the impact of technology, but what we've seen recently in Southeast Asia, which has been quite remarkable is this sort of growing um, cross-national alliance. So you have, you know, people in Taiwan, Hong Kong, Thailand, Myanmar, now all drawing from the same sort of rhetorical language of anti-authoritarianism and pro-democratic struggle, using the same symbols uh, in their protests. So in the case of Myanmar, you see the three finger salute, which is from the Hunger Games, um, which was initially adopted by Thai protests against, against the Thai coup in 2014. From there, it migrated to Hong Kong,
0: and that, and, picture and the, of the chicken foot when the catfish head.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, whoa! <laughs> and then, and then, yeah, and then it's been just like you know, in the last two weeks, it's been picked up by the anti-coup protesters in Myanmar, and then the banging of metal pans in Myanmar, which is a traditional way of driving out evil spirits. A lot of people were doing that to protest the coup. That's now been exported to Thailand, where the, the you know the, the youth-led protests there are employing that now one should, I think one should be cautious about overstating the, you know, the, the significance of this in terms of what it will actually achieve, but it shows sort of a remarkable cross fertilization of protest movements and their tactics and their demands. And, you know, and, and in the case of Myanmar, there, there is even signs that, you know, that there's some very positive signs about, you know, young protesters sort of transcending some of the um, poisonous political um, uh, you know problems of the past ethnic Burman chauvinism which has been a, you know a huge point of tension within the country with ethnic minority groups you're seeing young protesters in that country now sort of explicitly rejecting that um, where all, whereas you know a lot of old pro-democracy activists you know um, had sort of you know uh, I guess an unexamined ethnic Bama uh, privilege or you know a sort of a core assumption that that the country would be organized around a ethnic core. Um, You know, you see, you see, you know, positive things and and those positive messages and and visions can spread. Um, But, you know, it's, I think that, you know, China's vision of politics is very much the opposite of that. It's very top down. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, one of, I guess one of the, you know, it really remains to be seen how, how this plays out. I don't think there'll be a victory of, of one side over the other. I think there's going to be a sort of productive tension between the two. Well, maybe not a productive tension, maybe just simply tension. Um, but, you know, the COVID pandemic has been quite interesting, you know, um, in that it countries like China and Vietnam that have these very top down systems have you know, managed to control the virus quite successfully. The downside, of course, in China's case is that, you know, concern about, you know, um, secrecy and the and lack of accountability within the, the Chinese system allowed it to escape in the first place. So, you know, I would say that you know, um, you know, that sort of top-down, sort of quite paternalistic model of government is is probably, you know, present to varying degrees in all parts of Southeast Asia, although it manifests in very different ways in different countries. Um, but you know, there is a growing bottom-up pressure as well as there has been at periods in the past, and, and this time sort of enabled by information technology. So, uh, you know, I, I I don't think the future will be Either or, I think it'll sort of be, you know, I think these two things are likely to continue to exist in tension um, for the foreseeable future. And and I mean, as they have through much of modern history, really.
0: Yeah, I think that the, the one thing that um, that I would just suggest is, and and you've kind of touched on it, is, you know, 40 years ago, if you had a, you know, a coup forever you know you couldn't get on you, know, you couldn't get on twitter and see that hey you know what there's folks around the world who are support your freedom or hate you for doing this or or whatever and you were very much isolated from what was going on and you couldn't feel like you were supported during the hong kong protests we'd see the hong protesters get on and basically plead with the american government to support them to say something because mm. they didn't feel like they had the strength now that's really shifted and so if you as long as you have access to the internet you could find kind of that rallying cry good or bad unfortunately um and so i think mm. that's gonna be an interesting dynamic to watch um from the kind of the bottom down type stuff but anyways thank you so much for your book where can people follow your work uh um obviously you got your twitter but you want the, the diplomat where, where do you want to send people to
1: well, so I mean, uh, the Diplomat is a magazine where uh, you know I'm the Southeast Asia editor, and so I blog daily on on affairs in Southeast Asia, a lot on the Myanmar situation at the moment. Um, so that's thediplomat.com. Um, we covered the entire of the Asia Pacific, um, all the way through to Central Asia, um, and so we're great resource for keeping up to date with you know current affairs and news from the region. I'm also you can also find me on Twitter um, at sstrangio. S T R A N G I O. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I try not to spend too much time on Twitter, but you know, it it is a, it is a fun, can be a fun arena, um, to partake in. So I'm also there and I'm also, you know, on, on the web at Sebastian which, you know, as I post selected, um, articles, um, and, and I have information about my books if people are interested in having a look at that. Um, yeah.
0: Okay. And now that you completed your last book, your next book will be out in a year or two, I guess, right?
1: Right. I mean, <laughs> even thinking about doing another book makes my head hurt at the moment. But.
0: <laughs> that's, that's what I was getting at earlier when I asked the question. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's what I expected you. Okay. Well, thank you so much. And for listeners, uh, I believe we have another episode uh, next week. And so we'll be back then. All right. Thanks a lot, Ryan. It was, uh, I had a really fun time.